The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Walking Dead we're discussing before you listen to this podcast. Slate Plus members get early access to our Walking Dead podcast. If you're not a Slate Plus member but want early access, sign up at slate.com slash deadplus. Hello and welcome to Slate's Walking Dead podcast. I'm Mike Volo, senior producer here in Washington, D.C. Joining me from New York is video producer Chris Wade. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mike. How are you feeling? End of the uh, season here coming up. Yeah, I have to say I am impressed with the show that in its fifth season, I believe that this is the best episode that it's ever done. Really? Huh? You felt that strongly? Yeah. Excellent. Well, let's dive right in then. The cold open is... This is among the best episodes it's ever done. So you're walking it back a little bit already. Just a little bit. <laughs> I have to really think about what the actual best episodes of this are. I mean, probably the pilot, to be honest, but... Yeah, the pilot was really strong. Okay, so the cold open is a bit of a pastiche. We have Deanna and Bredge and their other son grieving for Aiden, listening to his run mix, rocking out in their living room. Blasting some nine-inch nails through their grief. Yeah, nine-inch nails. Carol is baking them a casserole, a kind of noodle kugel, it looks like to me. Sasha is assuaging her PTSD by picking off walkers from the lookout tower. And Daryl and Aaron are out scouting for recruits. So we get a real sort of hodgepodge of the group here. Yeah, in a sense where everybody is at the same time. Yeah, it worked nicely. And immediately after the cold open, we see that Deanna is taping an interview with Nicholas. At the same time, Glenn is talking to Rick. They're both giving their Rashomon-like divergent accounts of what went wrong on the mission. I hesitate to say Rashomon-like because that implies that each has their own sort of unconscious point of view, although it seems to me that Nicholas is actually lying, right? Oh, yeah. I, I was to assume, from what we knew from the last episode, that Nicholas is lying through his teeth to save his ass. Especially when he says that they wanted to leave, meaning Glenn and Eugene and the others from that group, and mm -hmm. we wanted to stay to help those who had fallen. Exactly the opposite occurred. Yeah. And also a bunch of little details like... Aiden was trying to take down a walker, and Glenn distracted him, distracted right. by saying, please do not shoot at that grenade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. I remember him using that word distracted, and I just thought, wait, what? That's at best misleading. <laughs> One thing that occurred to me while watching this episode was that it consisted almost entirely of either two or three person interactions that just kept building in tension and intensity for me. I felt really tense at the end of this episode. Yeah, it was a great paced crescendo of anxiety and fear and derailment of some of our lead characters throughout the entirety of it. Yeah, almost entirely played out with just very small interactions. You have mm -hmm. Carol telling Rick all of these details she apparently extracted from Sam regarding his abusive father and how he's beating Jesse. And then there's a very tense moment between Rick and Pete on the street at night where it seems that Rick is really holding himself back from shooting Pete. Mm -hmm. Then you have Rick talking to Deanna about what to do regarding Pete. And he finds out that Deanna knows that Pete is beating Jesse. And then you have Rick talking to Jesse about what to do about Pete you have Michonne and Rosita 
going out to look for Sasha, who is AWOL. So there's all of these very tense two-person, sometimes three-person interactions, and they built it up quite nicely throughout the episode. It just kept getting more and more anxiety-producing. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that there was a whole lot of nice scene work in here that really helped underscore the directions that everybody is going into and help clarify even more the essential tension down between these groups. I mean, even just in the differing accounts of Glenn and Nicholas, we see that they're both debriefing to their commander. Mm -hmm. And from what we know, one is a liar and the other is very earnestly telling the truth to describe the event as best they can to make the most well-informed decision about what to do. We see another example of this group, the Alexandrians, being essentially weak, knowing that this problem is there and just hoping that it goes away, which is kind of Rick's main philosophical point. Mm -hmm. Point of difference between this community is that you can't just hope that the problem will go away. You can't just hold yourself up. You have to be proactive if you want to survive. Surviving is a not a passive verb for Rick anymore. It's an active verb. Right. And along those lines, we were talking last week about how we couldn't quite grasp the logical leap to, well, he must be killed. Meaning Pete. Yeah, Pete must be killed. I think that some of the stuff that happened in this episode, at least for me, allowed me to jump on that logic train a little more. Let me unwind it. Please do. When you think about the possibilities of what to do with a guy like this in this situation, from Rick's perspective, from Carol's perspective, this is not a rehabilitative habit. As Rick says in this episode, this ends when you die to Jesse about Pete. Mm -hmm. So you say, okay, what do we do? In the like perfect Alexandrian version of a democracy, I don't know what you call town meeting and put this guy in front of it. And probably most of your like good, you know, upstanding civilized citizens will say, well, we will separate him voluntarily. But if he doesn't consent to that, what do you do? Okay, you jail him. Well, then you have somebody who is being a nonproductive member of this community who's essentially leeching resources, who is affecting the whole community's ability to survive. Keeping prisoners in this post-apocalypse does not make any survival sense. And again, this is all coming from the Rick's group perspective of proactive survival. So what? You exile him. Well, as Rick also says in this episode, if you send him out, he knows the secrets of this organization. He knows where it is. He knows its defenses. He knows how it's manned. He knows how many people are inside of it. He becomes then a threat to the community as well. Basically, anything you try to do to remove him from the community or his position in it that he does not directly consent to puts the entire community in danger. I mean, that's how I followed mm -hmm. their train of logic that was all said in, well, you know what you have to do, kill him. Well, a couple things. One, he is apparently the only surgeon, the only yeah. doctor, perhaps. And one might assume that he's still beholden to his medical oath, regardless of what else is going on, and that if somebody is in need of medical attention, then he would be there to provide it. That may or may not be the case. Also, it's not clear to me that you can't solve the problem, or at least attempt to solve the problem with a town meeting, an intervention of sorts, right? That involves more of the people, or perhaps only the people who were there inside the walls with him before Rick and company arrived so that he doesn't feel like he's being accosted by outsiders. Right. Or yes, threatened or chastised by people who are not of his original community. It's not clear to me that that wouldn't work. I mean, first of all, it seems like his abuse is alcohol related. He seems to be <laughs> drunk a lot. Constantly drunk. <laughs> it was not a subtle ramp up other than the first time we saw him on like the first episode he was introduced. He has been <laughs> positively soused every scene he's been in. Yeah. 
And so it may be that cutting him off from alcohol is a good first step. And as Deanna said to Rick during that confrontation between just the two of them, when Rick was suggesting to her that perhaps they kill Pete, she said, that's not how a civilization works. That's not how we're operating here inside these walls. And I really felt sympathetic to that point of view. It's just too lawless to have somebody like Rick decide that Pete forfeits his right to live because he's an abusive husband. I agree with Rick that ignoring the problem, as Deanna seems to have done, is not an option. That's unacceptable in its own way. But there has to be some solution that falls short of execution. I think that the other worry is that confronting him about it in any kind of public way puts Jesse and Sam in further danger because the thought is that he will retribute the indignities suffered on him, on them, and try to control them more through violence. Right. And what about Sam's older brother, Ron? Where is he in all of this? That's not clear. Oh, I didn't even know Sam had an older brother. I think so. He's the guy who is sort of maybe dating Enid. Oh, so there are a couple of other two-person interactions that I neglected to mention. There's the one between Glenn and Nicholas when Glenn tells Nicholas, essentially, you're you're no longer allowed to leave these walls, either alone or with anybody else, because you're just too incompetent, because you don't know what you're doing and you're going to get people killed and you're going to get yourself killed. And of course, 10 minutes later, we see Nicholas having left the walls by himself to go retrieve the gun that Rick had put in a blender that somehow Nicholas found immediately and has been secreting away for himself. So that's pretty ominous. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also the two-person interaction that started out fun between Carl and Enid. It was kind of vaguely romantic. They're both a little scared of each other. They're both a little mysterious to each other. And they wander outside the walls kind of in a slow motion sequence, (laughs) frolicking in the woods and hide in a hollowed out tree as a mini herd of walkers passes by. So that became tense. I was glad to see... uh... Carl getting some more airtime and getting a little plot of him not being totally like (laughs) whiny or like in peril or basically a dramatic counterpoint or weight on Rick. Yeah. I like that kid a lot. I think he's good. I saw in one of the promotions for The Talking Dead, the (laughs) ongoing Walking Dead talk show immediately afterwards, that uh, he was going to be on it. And it was his first ever talk show appearance. And I surprisingly to myself was like, oh, good for you, dude. Get out there. I think that that kid's a good actor, and I hope that he has a career beyond this. I've been on the fence about him as an actor over the seasons. I'm pretty charmed by him. You're charmed by him? Especially, like, over the course of these five years, I think he's grown into what is being asked of him and the character and his acting prowess. And, you know, it's a hard era of somebody's life to have splattered, often literally, all over television. And I think he's pulling it off. Yeah, I'm not sure how old the actor is in real life, but it occurred to me when he and Enid were in the hollowed out tree and their lips were perhaps two inches apart. It occurred to me, like, are we about to see this kid's first, not only on-screen kiss, but kiss ever in life? Chandler Riggs. He will be 16 in June. So maybe, who knows? Yeah, it's possible. I don't know. So meanwhile, Daryl and Aaron stumble upon what looks like a scene out of True Detective or something, right? (laughs) Yeah. There's somehow now this connection between a sadistic group of people or maybe lone person who apparently tied up a woman to a tree 
and let her be eaten by walkers, eaten alive, presumably, there seems to be some connection between that and these W's that are now carved into various walkers' heads, right? Yes. I mean, that woman was murdered, right? Is that what we're to assume? Yes, I think so. That's how I took it, that she was left alive for zombies to gorge on. And also then presumably gouged that W in her head while she was still alive. Yeah. Somebody on Twitter told me that we're overlooking the idea that it could be an M, but they're all very clearly oriented towards the W direction of a standing human. So Yeah. There's no way for us to know what this all means. It could be Yeah, we seem anything. to have very few clues as to what the origin of these Ws are. I don't think we're given anything in which we can speculate more than, like, there's something out there. You said that maybe it was for Washington. I don't have any evidence that that's the case. I'm just, I, you know, live and work here in Washington, D.C., and they are in Alexandria, which is on the other side of the river. And it occurs to me, hey, what's a big W? <laughs> Close to Alexandria. Yeah, <laughs> Close to Alexandria. It's hey, Washington, D.C. I don't know if we have enough information to, to say anything more like, oh, I hope they let us know what these are. I assume that's something that will be revealed in the finale. I'm, I bet Daryl and Aaron will uncover something about the origins of this mystery and bring it back. And that will set up for more danger in, uh, in the next season. Maybe it's just somebody who's a really big Washington Nationals fan. <laughs> and just has to keep that legacy going in the post-apocalypse. Right. Although the, the W in the Washington Nationals logo is in scripty cursive. Hard to carve into a forehead. Yeah. So overall, this episode had the feeling for me of really building towards now this showdown that we've been waiting for. Rick, at the very end of the episode, confronts Jesse about confronting Pete, and then that two-person interaction turns into a three-person interaction that gets more and more tense when Pete enters the room and says to Rick, you know, what the hell are you doing here, and why are you so close to my wife, and what the hell are you guys talking about? It ends with them physically grappling, throwing each other through the window, out on the street, until Michonne comes and knocks Rick unconscious. Well, that's after his deranged, blood-covered... Oh, right, speech. right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there, there were a lot of beats in this fistfight that I thought were really great. Not just people flying through a window, which, if you remember, is one of my other permanent through all visual media drinking game rules. Yes, right. So did you take a drink when that happened? A drink of water. It was late at night. Okay. But yes, a drink of whatever beverage is close by. It also had that really great beat where Jesse runs up and tries to stop them and Pete kind of violently pushes her away and then Carl runs up and tries to stop them and Rick kind of violently pushes him away. Right. A nice little show, not tell. Maybe we're not too different at that moment beat for those guys. Yeah. Jesse ran up to try to stop when it seemed that Pete had the upper hand and he was on top and he was choking Rick. And then Carl ran up to stop when they switched positions essentially and Rick seemed to have the upper hand. And was choking Pete. Like, oh, these dang women and children trying to stop men from doing what they have to do. Yeah. So let's get back to Rick's speech. So the content I'm sympathetic to. Rick is, I think, entitled to feel frustrated with these people. His presentation, on the other hand, was another thing entirely. If your goal is to get across to these people that perhaps there could be some changes... What Rick did was self-sabotage. Yeah, have some self-awareness, dude. <laughs> it was very difficult for me to feel like I was on Rick's side throughout that speech. He just came across 
as a lunatic and somebody who should be exiled. You, you just sit and plan and hesitate. You pretend like you know when you don't. Oh, yeah. I think we were definitely to take that moment as, you know, there is a gear loose in Rick's head at this point. He's not just trying to behave in a way that we know to be a survivable way in this world by having seen them for five seasons do it. He has moved steadily and now decisively into the realm of derangement. Things don't get better because you want them to. Starting right now, we have to live in the real world. We have to control who lives here. That's never been more clear to me than it is right now. Me? Me? You, <laughs> you, you mean me? So maybe what happens is that there is some kind of tribunal and Rick is judged to be crazy or at least unstable. I know you don't like watching the next time ons, but one of the only clear scenes in the next time ons was a tribunal in which Deanna is saying literally, we have a problem and its name is Rick Grimes or something like that. (laughs) Okay, so there you go. We need to talk about Rick Grimes, something like that. Okay, so then apparently that does happen. So that's a good guess. Right, so good guess. Well, I mean, it it seems logical, right? I mean, Rick really was unhinged in that last scene. Yeah, this is pretty hard to walk back from. And when Michonne, who has been his close right-hand woman, lieutenant, is the one who feels necessary to step in. I actually really like the, like, kind of two-beat Michonne arc here, going out into the woods to retrieve Sasha, who is going hunting now, active, taking the fight to the herd. Sasha says something like, I don't need help. And Michonne says something like, you think this is for you? Succumbing to the same reveling in, in the kill that Sasha has been reveling in. Right. Well, while Sasha was killing the herd, we see flashes going through Michonne's mind of her Mm -hmm. very elegantly taking out walkers with her sword. Yeah, that was a very uh, nicely edited sequence. Mm -hmm. All the action shots between the gun battle unfolding in the present and the sword violence in the past, I thought it was very elegantly put together, which I certainly appreciate. Yeah, Michonne is certainly trying to stave off what Sasha is going through, while at the same time, trying to embrace this new life and having problems with both. Yeah, and it was a nice character surprise to see her show up. I mean, not just as good of a surprise as it was in the moment, but a character surprise for her to see her having apparently come back and fully decided that the hanging up of the samurai sword is not merely symbolic, but a a life decision. Perhaps then what they're setting us up for, I like what you said, that the W carving people become a greater threat and then Rick and Glenn and company somehow prove their metal, their worth by neutralizing that threat. Or perhaps more importantly, not only proving their worth, but proving to the Alexandrians themselves their own incompetence. Yeah. But then where do we go from there? Then we're back in the Alexandria community with all of them living together. With a tacitly accepted rictatorship. (laughs) Yeah. And the sexual tension between Rick and Jesse, right? Yeah. Wait, I do want to talk about that for a moment because I felt like that was another moment that I was like, wait, what? Clearly their arc has been that there is like some kind of tension between them and it seems like she's attracted to him and he's something to her. But as their relationship quickly builds and he becomes more and more deranged, that moment where she asks him like, would you only offer that for me? Mm Mm-hmm. 
I was really expecting in that moment for him to say yes and her to say, well, then I can't accept it because... Me too. Yeah. Yeah. That seemed more true to the moment and her character. I think that she seemed like she was more aware of his specific interest in her and aware that for everything to work in this organization, he would have to be impartial. Right. It seemed like what she wanted to hear from Rick was some statement of universal benevolence, universal generosity of spirit, whereas he suggested that he was doing it for her and her alone. Mm -hmm. And I expected exactly what you expected, which was for her to then reject him on those grounds. And we got the opposite. She was like, well, then, yes. Great. Yeah. It seemed an odd leap for her, especially given the increasingly deranged nature of her would-be savior. And also that Pete was apparently like right around the corner and she wasn't like, hey, maybe we should talk about this someplace else. It's often the case in The Walking Dead that, and this happens, I feel, in, I guess, in a lot of TV and film, where people are somehow able to enter rooms or enter scenes without the people who are already present hearing them. Or alternately entering a room and having no knowledge of what the people were talking about just seconds before. Yeah. There's got to be a fix for that. Just a really subtle Foley work of shoe steps coming for like 30 seconds before they enter the scene. It would have been funny if then the ensuing fist fight we saw that Pete was just wearing socks yeah. the entire time. <laughs> right. I'm pretty sure those houses have all hardwood floors, right? Did we yeah. learn that in the when we got the tour of the community in the, that first episode? Yeah, yeah. They might have even specifically mentioned, mentioned that. Yeah, I think. Well, we were also did. talking about that when uh, Tyrese got killed, where we were like, yeah. oh, this, I get that he's lost in thought, but he's also been trained to be acutely aware of sound around him, and this thing just totally comes out of nowhere. Right, and it happened also when Maggie was walking up the stairs of Deanna's house from the basement oh, yes. and overheard Gabriel talking to Deanna. And somehow neither of them heard Maggie walking up the stairs, which seems odd. And obviously, like I said, this is a kind of necessary suspension of disbelief for dramatic purposes so that people can overhear things that they're not supposed to be privy to. Yeah. Yo, Walking Dead, your ambient noise game is whack. Yeah. Get it back on track. I can't buy into this universe at all. <laughs> so two last things. One specific to this episode, one more general. This episode was called Try. Any thoughts about why? Is it because they're all trying to keep it together? They're all trying? Yeah, I don't know. I think that the other episode titles of this season have been very specific and obvious about what they're doing. I'm not sure what the essay is in this episode. Yeah. Trying still to make this work. It seems like it's especially ironic of a name for an episode in which Rick makes the biggest decision that he's not going to try to stand in the status quo much longer. So my second question is, in the lore, I guess, why are walkers, zombies, whatever we want to call them in this mythos, why are they so hungry all the time? I think the idea is, if you remember that CDC session with the uh, cool CGI brains where we saw a bullet pass through an MRI inexplicably. Yeah, I do remember that. Was that explained? I, I don't Yeah. Remember. Okay. He showed an image of the brain shutting down and then the like zombie virus neurons flowing back into the brain and just activating the brain stem. Just activating like the cerebellum. Yeah. And basically them saying like they become automations acting only on their uh, 
basest survival instincts, which oh, is right, right. to eat. Although it's not clear if they drink. Yeah, I was just, that was my next question, but they don't ever seem to get thirsty, do they? I mean, Dumb. I would imagine all that brains and guts would make you thirsty after a while. Yeah. I mean, the physiology is <laughs> perplexing. Yeah, it's a little squishy. Literally. So any last thoughts from you before we head off into the final episode of the season? This has been a pretty great stretch of episodes. I am down for this conflict. I think it raises a lot of interesting questions. I think we've seen a lot of our characters on pretty interesting arcs, more interesting than I think that I had given the show credit for it being possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of truly surprising that in this show's, you know, late into the show's fifth season, it's still able to make its characters progressively more and more interesting throughout. And I think that that is, even though... I often like to roll my eyes at the uh, the long-term storytelling of The Walking Dead and the amount of narrative wheel spinning that it does. I have to say to its credit that that is a, a pretty strong accolade for any fifth season drama. Thank you so much for listening, Chris. I'm going to be sad when this season's over. I'm going to be sad not to be able to talk about this with you anymore. But we still have one more episode to go. It's a 90-minute episode, so I really look forward to it. Talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you later, Mike.